And good evening live from Charlotte, North Carolina. I'm James Briarton. It is Wednesday, July the 8th. 2020. We're so happy you're here with us. Coming up in just moments, we're going to uh, share with you a conversation we had with Mississippi State University student Alex Forbes, who conducted a survey to find out whether you and home truly understand those tears that you see in the Storm Prediction Center outlook. We'll explain all of it coming up in just a moment, but those are the marginal, slight, medium, high risks, the one, two, three, four, five, we sometimes talk about them, and he'll get into the numbers as well, too. And uh, spoiler alert, he found out that many of uh, you at home in the general public don't understand the words that the uh, National Weather Service and the Storm Prediction Center have decided to use, and he'll get into some of that, and and, and it may not be your fault. So uh, I don't want to talk any more about that and give any more of it away, but uh, that'll be coming up in just a moment right here on this week's edition of the Carolina Weather Group. But uh, we want to start right now with a tropical update. We take a look now at the outlook from the National Hurricane Center, and you can see there if you're watching our program tonight or if you're listening on our audio podcast, I will read to you we're looking at a red X uh, a 70% chance of development here of a tropical system off the coast of the Carolinas uh, and this will be named Faye if it reaches a tropical storm status now what we have been watching the last couple days if you've been following us on social media is a low pressure system that came on shore from the Gulf of Mexico and ended up crossing parts portions of southern Georgia and South Carolina that's what actually has been giving us Several days of these uh, kind of muggy temperatures. It's been slightly cooler than it has been, but it's been very muggy. It's been very cloudy. We'll take a look right here at these live pictures from WeatherStem in Wilmington, South Carolina, uh, North Carolina, and you can see some of those lingering clouds that have been associated with this system. But again, this system traveled across Georgia, South Carolina, now moving back out to sea off the coast of the Carolinas, and it has been upgraded to a probable chance, about 70% chance, of developing into a tropical system in the next little bit here. And if we take a look at the NAM run, this again is one of the models we look at here for the future. You can kind of see this thing spinning off the coast of the Carolinas over the next 24 to 48 hours. And this is really going to be bringing a significant amount of rain to eastern North Carolina. For the most part, if you're, if you're in South Carolina, your coast has largely been spared, but we will be watching this over the coming days. Again, for eastern North Carolina, including the Outer Banks and then eventually into Chesapeake Bay, into Virginia and up the coast, we can actually look at on that same NAM run some of the precipitable water uh, that we would expect to see. And I'm going to go ahead now and then switch this over to our total precipitation amount. And as I start to play this forward, you can see that over the coming 12 hours or so, we could be looking at several inches of rain there from Atlantic Beach uh, out along towards Cape Hatteras and all eventually along the Mid-Atlantic coastline. And if I were to mouse this over, again, if you're watching here from the Outer Banks, we could be looking at several inches of, of rain, maybe upwards of four inches, maybe even more uh, low localized in some of these spots because it's just like the weather we've been seeing on a lesser scale across the Carolinas the past few days where you get these sudden pop-up storms, uh, a few of which could be strong to severe, a few of which prompted some localized flash flood warnings. And again, we'll be watching this. Even if for some reason it didn't get named, we are still going to be watching for a localized flood event along eastern North Carolina over the course of the next few days. 
all of that being said, it is July. Some of you may be going to the beach. Some of you may not be going to the beach because of the ongoing coronavirus concerns and the restrictions on travel. But if you are watching or you will be traveling across eastern North Carolina or that mid-Atlantic coast, again, we're going to be watching here for a 70% chance of development that this becomes a tropical system. If it gets named, it will be Fay. And for all I know, by the time you're listening to this podcast tomorrow morning when we release it at 6 a.m. on Thursdays, it could be named by then. So uh, we'll continue to keep an eye on it right here at the Carolina Weather Group, and we'll bring you some updates uh, as we get them. If you are watching or listening from South Carolina, you may be thinking, yeah, I know all about those localized flood threats. You're talking about several inches of rain, some very localized flooding, and some hot spots from Charleston to areas south towards Hilton Head and Savannah. We'll show you those breakdowns coming up in just about 30 minutes from now. But we want to get you over now to this conversation with Alex Forbes and his study and his findings about those storm Prediction Center Outlook. So let me toss it over to my colleague, Scotty Powell, joining us from the foothills of North Carolina in Morganton. Scotty. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Carolina Weather Group. We're happy to have you uh, this evening, and uh, we want to bring in Alex Forbes, meteorologist student at Mississippi State University. And Alex uh, has got a really cool project that he's been working on and was able to present over the last few months, and uh, we're happy to have him on tonight. We're going to be talking about the SPC and the different um, risk levels. Sometimes you hear us talk about marginal, slight, moderate, all that good stuff. Well, Alex was able uh, to interview you all uh, with some assistance from some meteorologists and kind of get a better understanding of when we mention these things, what do you actually learn from it? So tonight we're going to be talking about that and some of his findings. Uh, we'll let Alex promote uh, his social media towards the end of the show. So if you do have any questions that you'd like to tweet um, towards him, you can uh, send them his way and uh, he can maybe help you out a little bit more uh, with some of his research. So Evan, uh, I know you and I, uh, we're, we're excited to talk about this. We saw this project uh, a couple of uh, weeks ago presented and we're ecstatic to have Alex on with us tonight. So um, Alex, before we kind of get into the, the meat of the subject, uh, first time guest with us. So we want to mm -hmm. uh, thank you for that. And, and we always ask the first time guest question, uh, how did you uh, how did you decide this is what you want to do? How did how did you catch the weather bug? So for me, it was first grade. It was March. Um, there was a line of severe storms that came through Metro Atlanta, and I I still don't know to this day whether or not it was a tornado or straight line winds. We were never surveyed, so I I don't know. Um, but a tree fell on the corner of my house, right over there. Um, and it fell on the house and it fell on the ground, woke me up at four in the morning. Um, and that was what planted the seed. Um, but I didn't really start to get into weather and meteorology until about fourth or fifth grade. Um, and it, it just evolved over time. It, it started off with, or it continued with me doing the weather for the elementary news. And then, you know, in middle school and high school and so forth, it just kept building and building and building. Um, and lo and behold, I'm a senior now at Mississippi State, so something worked out. So in Georgia, I know uh, Georgia uh, has the meteorology program. What, what made you uh, decide to go to Mississippi State? Yeah, so uh, I want to do TV. Um, Georgia has a fantastic uh, geography program with, of which meteorology is a part of. They just recently added the meteorology degree, but you know, Mississippi State is known for broadcasting, and that makes a difference. Um, Plus, you know, it, 
it, it's not exactly far from me. Mississippi State's or Starkville is about four and a half hours. You know, it's it's close enough. And you know, they their um, uh, scholarships they offer for out of state students is fantastic. So it was it really became a no brainer. As a Florida Gator fan, I'd much rather cheer for Mississippi State than the Georgia Bulldogs. I know James yes. won't be happy about that. But. Well, you know, <laughs> it's a matter of fact. So <laughs> that's right. That's right. Uh, well, let's let before we get in trouble, let's uh, talk about uh, what uh, what you've done some research on uh, the Storm Prediction Center. Uh, Alex, we, we see these uh, outlooks posted, uh, especially in the spring and summertime, uh, thunderstorm outlooks with severe weather. So uh, you decided to kind of dig into it and kind of, uh, uh, you know, ask the public what they think of these words that we tossed out. But before we kind of get into your research, uh, let's briefly go into each category. Uh, I know you had to do some research about those categories and basically mm-hmm. kind of what kind of weather we see with those. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about those categories and, and you know, what they mean? And, and maybe then we can lead into to some of your research. Yeah, so the Storm Prediction Center issues convective outlooks. You might know them as the avocado maps. They, uh, typically, it's a green region with a yellow region inside of that, with an orange region inside of that. You know, sometimes you get the moderate, which is the red, and the high, which is the pinkish purple color. So what I did was I... A belief that has existed among broadcast meteorologists for a long time is that the names don't work. Um, so marginal, you is a you know it's a you might see a storm if you do it could be severe. There's a certain percentage assigned to each of these that's arbitrary and it doesn't mean a lot to the public. So I'm not even going to get into them because they're they're meant for meteorologists. Slight is a step up from marginal you'll probably see storms. A couple of them might be severe. Enhanced is, okay, there's going to be storms. Probably half of them, give or take, might be severe. Moderate's like, okay, you know, this is serious. There's going to be storms. They're probably going to be severe. And high is, there's storms. They're going to be severe. There's going to be, in most cases, tornadoes. You know, loss of life is a concern, so forth. Um, But the other thing I would point out about them is that when these categories were uh, updated in 2015, the, they're, they're not equally weighted, right? So the marginal was the old C text. It wasn't a category before this. It's not like an old slight is now a marginal. It just, it's, it's new category. Slight was split into two. There's, they kept slight for the lower end of the threat and they added enhanced for the upper end. And then moderate is still moderate and high is still high. So if you jump from a slight to an uh, enhanced, that's not the same from jumping from an enhanced to a moderate. Um, and that's part of what confuses a lot of people is that you know meteorologists understand that an enhanced to a moderate is a much bigger jump from a slight to enhanced. People see, oh, uh, the lower category to the next category, and they say, okay, you know, just another notch higher. Um, so that's pretty much it in a nutshell. Um, the other thing I will add is in recent years, the Storm Prediction Center has begun to acknowledge a number system and association with the words. Uh, you'll see that on a few of their graphics, but it's not widespread use and widespread use yet. So you reached out to the public to kind of do a survey and to see how people were uh, you know, handling the threats and interpreting all of the different lingo that's associated mm-hmm. with them. Uh, what led you to choosing the Southeast uh, as your kind of study group area? Yeah, so there's been studies in the past that show the Southeast United States is emerging as the new tornado hotspot within the United States. 
Um, a lot of severe weather studies are based out of the traditional tornado alley, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, Arkansas. Also, I live in the Southeast. You know, I, I want to know what people around me think. I want to work in the Southeast. I want to know what my potential viewers one day think right now. Um, I think there's a tremendous value added about knowing that the data is from a specific region. Um, so such that, you know, I, I am not conflating people's understanding of the outlook terminology in Georgia versus New York, because we get convective outlooks almost every day in the spring and summer. In New York, they get them five, 10 times a year, maybe. That's, you know, I, an estimate. I don't know for sure. Um, so I, I think there's tremendous value added in having a specific area and understanding that and what those people think in that spot. So what'd you find? I know that's kind of a big question with a big answer, but tell us about it. 4,000 responses culminated into this. And the headline is that what meteorologists, the, the hierarchy of the words that the Storm Prediction Center uses that the meteorologists understand is not understood by the public. Now, I will throw this caveat in there in that the convective outlooks technically are not designed for the public. They never were. They still aren't. Um, they are designed for meteorologists to take and then interpret and relate to the public. But that does not negate the fact that they are used on TV channels, social media, everything that the public sees almost in terms of weather on a regular basis. Um, so what the, the biggest thing is that the, the current hierarchy, the marginal slight enhanced moderate high is what the SPC uses and what the public perceives as the hierarchy of those words with no context is slight as the first level, marginal, which is the second, moderate, the third, enhanced, which is the fourth, and the fifth being high. So the high is the only category that translates from one to the other. So it's it, it's a problem. Um, I mean, it and you know, the results even surprised me to an extent. I expected the moderate and enhanced flip, but I did not expect the slight and marginal flip. Um, you know, it it's it's something that needs to be taken into account because whether we like it or not, the public has become the primary consumers of the convective outlooks. And if there is a disparity in what people believe, especially when you know, it, it's conveying uh, life-threatening information, perhaps days in advance, you know, it, it matters. Um, so that's, that's the SPC part in a nutshell. There were some other um, pieces of the puzzle that was good news. Um, over 95% of people correctly identified alerts, like a tornado watch, tornado warnings, for a thunderstorm watch, for a thunderstorm warning. 82% either agreed or strongly agreed that a severe thunderstorm, the, the term severe thunderstorm, means that the storm is capable of causing as much damage as a tornado. So, you know, it, it, something's getting through to these people um, with those terms. So that, I mean, that just brings up another conclusion that I had that people should use the term severe thunderstorm, you know, warning watch as opposed to thunderstorm warning or watch, which I see on occasion. It's not widespread use, but I just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, and you know how people receive alerts was also measured in this. Close to 70% of people received an alert through their mobile weather app. So I mean that that is more than two thirds of the respondents to this survey who keep in mind are weather savvy because they most likely found this on a social media channel through a meteorologist. Um, 
but still we are at 70% of people now. Now I will uh, include that I did not specify the wireless emergency alerts as a different option because I don't think people know the difference. Um, but still 70% of people are dependent on their phones for an alert and that's where they receive it first. Um, and when an alert is issued, 61.8% of people say they turn to local television, which is a meaningful number. So if somebody's getting a tornado warning on their phone, they're turning on the TV to whatever meteorologist they follow um, and trust for information. So that's an interesting point because social media, uh, especially weather Twitter, you know, we're all involved in weather Twitter. We're like, mm -hmm. we, we get our weather information from Twitter a lot of the times, yes. but the vast majority of the you know, general people out there in the Southeast aren't on weather Twitter. They're not like us. They aren't going, they aren't going to see your tornado warning post or, you know, what, what, the, whatever post you're doing. Um, so it's interesting that, you know, TV really still is the primary uh, mode for those people to get those warnings. Yeah. And the, the other interesting thing about TV is that even among 18 to 24 year olds, 51% of the respondents of that age group said they still turn to local television, which is huge. Wow. Um, because, you know, I, I honestly expected that number to be low, but not for the same reason. I think that a lot of other people think it's that, you know, people have this mantra of people our age aren't going to watch TV. And I don't know that to be the case because I think even now with millennials, it's not that we are never going to watch TV. It's that we aren't going to watch local news until it matters to us. And in most cases, that's not until you're in a established routine with a family living in the suburbs, something along those lines. And I, you know, I think the groundwork is there for local TV to prosper actually within, you know, as our age group becomes older, if 51% of people now are already turning to local television whenever they receive an alert like this. And you know, off of that, Alex, with local television, most of the time they are breaking in, but they're also simulcasting per se mm -hmm. on a Facebook live or on a Periscope or something like that. So, I mean, if you kind of put the TVs in the, in that aspect of the social media together, that's uh, that's a pretty big percentage. Yes, absolutely. I also, I found it interesting. I've got some of your stats up and um, you know, 12.3% of folks, receive their uh their warning first by NOAA weather radio that's something that i guess i'm a little shocked by that because i wouldn't think 12 percent of the people would even have a NOAA weather radio yeah so keep in mind the people who took the survey are weather savvy because they probably found it through uh a meteorologist on social media um i would point out though is I, I don't remember exactly who did the study, what year it was. I just remember it was 10 plus years ago that the NOAA weather radio number was at like 60% and it's down to 12. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do not see a path forward for NOAA weather radio being the predominant way of people receiving information simply because it's a cost barrier why am I going to go buy a $29 weather radio when this thing right here is going to give me the same information? So I think we're asking the wrong questions when it comes to NOAA weather radio, not why aren't people buying NOAA weather radios, but rather why is the Federal Communications Commission not just sending you alerts and you can't turn them off like they do on TV? You know, if, if you are in a tornado warning and you are watching a broadcast channel, 
you are going to get an EAS alert. You can't turn them off. So there, there's precedent to do it. Um, and I, I seriously think, you know, 70, close to 70% of people are already relying on these. Why not just make it mandatory? Um, and have that be the de facto NOAA weather radio. Now, I don't think they're ever going to go away. I think there's still a use for them. Um, you know, what happens when your phone dies? What happens when there's a hurricane and you run out of power, your generator's out of gas, and, you know, you, you can crank a weather radio. That's the most extreme case, but I don't think they're going to be the main. In fact, they're already not the mainstream way of receiving alerts, and I don't think they're ever going to be again. I, I know you're doing um, some of these questions also about when they hear these warnings issued. Um, mm -hmm about taking shelter or, or alerting friends and stuff. Can you kind of go in some of, in some of those details, what you found out? Yeah. So um, I, I asked about four alert types in particular, the Sphere Thunderstorm Watch, the Tornado Watch, Sphere Thunderstorm Warning and Tornado Warning. And I asked the, you know, when a blank is issued, I blank. So the other part of the blank is take shelter, alert friends and neighbors, monitor weather conditions, uh, check social media, watch local television, and watch national television. Um, of those four questions, there's nothing I really found surprising. Um, I, for each one, you know, social media was between 80 and 90% with combined degree. Um, for the, you know, the troubling, I, I guess, a troubling aspect is for a severe thunderstorm watch, 22% of people said that they take shelter. Um, but, you know, keep in mind, these are the same people who accurately uh, picked out a severe thunderstorm watch definition. 97.2% of these respondents um, correctly identified a severe thunderstorm watch. So, you know, I, it's, it comes down to people's interpretation of what take shelter means. Does that mean you just stay inside all day? Does it mean you go to the lowest level, most interior room? I don't know. Um, but I, I mean, there was, there wasn't anything that, you know, is a red flag in the results specifically for those four questions. You, you know, you were talking about wanting to go all, you know, broadcast TV in the Southeast. So keeping that in mind, there's, a lot of different styles of severe weather coverage. Um, mm -hmm. I think you have some folks who just kind of say present the radar. Uh, and then you have folks like James Spann who really gets down into the specifics, like it's going to affect the dollar general in town X or town Y. Um, I, I know you may have not surveyed the folks on that, but what's your, what do you, what's your opinion on that? What do you think is most useful for those folks who are turned into TV, um, watching this coverage yeah no absolutely though the most precise you can be the better one of the reasons why james span has the following he does is because people see him as one of them uh he you know the fact that he knows where the dollar tree is in gordo alabama which i happen to know where it is too because i drive <laughs> past there to get to mississippi state and he uses that example all the time so i feel good about it <laughs> it matters because like I said, people feel like he's one of them, but also he knows the area. It adds validity to his call to action of, okay, you know, I know where this is and I know where it's going. And if he can tell somebody, you know, I know where it's going and I'm telling you now in, you know, Coleman, Alabama, if you are on Main Street, people trust him. 
And that's what it comes down to is who do you trust? Um, and one of the reasons why people trust him is because they know he knows what he's doing. And the more information you can provide, the better it is. More of our conversation when the Carolina Weather Group returns after this short break. Thanks for staying with us. We'll pick up our conversation now on this week's episode of the Carolina Weather Group. What, what does the future look like? Is this something that you're going to be able to advise the SPC on? Uh, and they're going to look at your findings. And they're going to be able to maybe make some adjustments, hopefully, in the future. Yeah. So an interesting thing about my findings is that there is a similar study that is working on being completed now. I don't think it's published just yet. They're working on it out of University of Oklahoma, Sean Ernst. He found the exact same hierarchy issue um, with respondents out there. So um, the Storm Prediction Center knows about it. You know, they can't just flip a switch and change it. Um, nor would I say, nor would I say I'm calling on them to do that, because at the end of the day, even though we all use the convective outlook, we have to remind ourselves that it is not designed for the public. You know, it it is distributed to the public because it has to be under federal law because they're a federal agency. But it, at the end of the day, I, my main goal in publishing this was saying it was providing the groundwork to broadcasters and using a one through five scale to describe those terms because a number scale is a universally identified language. You know, one, two, three, four, five means the same thing in English as it does in Spanish, as in French, as in German. And it's already used for things like the Sacker Simpson scale, the enhanced Fujita scale. People understand that the higher the number is, the worse the threat is. And, you know, just eliminating the words off the screen provides much more clarity for the general public. And, you know, I, I would encourage that to this day. Uh, some folks are, are um, trying to go down the color line and trying mm -hmm. to make colors represent the different severity. What, what's your thoughts on that? So I might get in trouble for this. <laughs> um, a lot of meteorologists don't like the color scale. And I do. I think the green, yellow, orange, red, pink um, works. So it, within that, you have the built-in green, yellow, red, you know, good, moderate, bad. And people are smart enough to drive that, okay, the orange between the yellow and the red is the intermediary. And if there's something after the red, it means it's probably worse. It doesn't matter what color it is, it's probably going to be that. Um, and two other things I will add is no matter what colors you use, I still think people are going to translate the color to a number. Um, you know, if, if you show them two areas and you have, you know, if you show them a green and a yellow area and the yellow areas inside and you've got a legend up top and there's the five colors, they're going to translate with that. Okay, so it's the first two colors and the yellow is the second worst. So, you know, I, and there's the whole principle of uh, a region within a region, right? You're, you're not going to get a moderate area that is surrounded by a marginal area directly. You're always going to have a leveled marginal, slight, enhanced, moderate, high, as it stands now, um, with that area. And I think people are smart enough to be able to derive that if there's a region within another region, the higher threat is in that smaller region that is entirely contained. Um, and, you know, the, I, I'm not sure if y'all have had Castle Williams on in the past. He's from University of Georgia. He just he did his dissertation on something similar to this, but he focused on some of the colors and the overall communication of it. 
and the, the recommendations that ended up coming out of his project is that meteorologists should always use the same region and so you're not adjusting the SPC map and the same colors as the SPC. You can change the wording, you can make it your own, you can give it a different feel, but as long as you keep that consistency, people are gonna understand it. Um, so, I mean, that's my two cents on it. I'm, again, I'm a senior meteorology student at Mississippi State. I am in no position to be making that type of decision whether or not to change something, but I, I think it works. And I think a lot of the confusion comes from the words and not the colors. So Alex, was there anything in the research that we kind of haven't covered or that surprised you that you still want to go over before we kind of start to wind the show down? Yeah, so there's um, an interesting uh, idea that was, or everybody's gut reaction to my findings was, okay, we need to change the word order. And I don't think you can do that because there is already an existing order. And if you change it, you're just going to confuse more people because what happens when, you know, Sally down the road doesn't know that it changed and all of a sudden a moderate is now at level three and she's freaking out because it used to be a level four and that's a noticeable difference. Um, the other thing, the other piece of data I would put to back that up is that sure, even though, you know, 50.4% of people, a majority of people saw slight as number one, 49.6% of people did not. Um, you know, uh, the biggest disparity was, uh, uh, that was the biggest disparity, but you know, 61.9% of people saw moderate as a level three, 38.1% of people did not see moderate as a level three. So even if you reconfigure the words, you're still going to have problems. And I think those numbers would go up because you would just cause more confusion with a change. Um, so that's why I advocate for an entirely number-based scale. I think it works. Um, just dump the words completely. You will confuse far less people. I think it's a very interesting um, topic because as you were saying, you know, I think it's hard to change the, the names uh, but I love the idea of the numbers and I hope, you know, I know SPC is looking at some stuff and hopefully, you know, with your research and the research that's going on out of Oklahoma, hopefully we can start to incorporate these, these number skills because I do believe people relate well or maybe more better with, with numbers than compared to these words because, you know, in my mind, enhanced and moderate automatically should be switched. I, I just, that doesn't make sense to me, but uh, I really do hope we can latch on to, uh, onto the number aspect because I do think it conveys a more simple message. And, and when you're talking to people who are not weather savvy, they just want to know the information. Mm -hmm. And I think that helps get them the information they need to know. Yeah. And it helps them understand the threats better. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, you, I, you probably noticed in the beginning, I had a little trouble describing the words and I think everybody does because they're, the, the definition of them is percentage based. It's not based off of, you know, a certain type of storm that is expected or a certain setup or something along those lines. It's entirely arbitrary that people aren't going to understand. I mean, think about this. People don't understand chance of rain. All they do is formulate 50% is the halfway mark. And if it's below 50%, it's not going to rain. If it's above 50%, it's going to rain. That, that's literally what they do. 
Um, I have asked people who are not meteorologists this question, and I have gotten that answer more often than not. Um, so, you know, that that's part of the issue in that the groundwork for this is percentage based. Um, but the, I would just circle back to one other thing is that, you know, while the SPC cannot change their outlook with the flip of the switch, a chief meteorologist at a station can as long as their news director is on board. You know, I, I, I will use a Atlanta as an example. Um, even though I was an intern at Fox 5, um, they use, what they do is they show the numbers and the words, which is most common for now. We're working on that. Um, uh, Channel 2 WSB here in Atlanta has dropped words completely. All they do is show the colors. They use a slightly different color scale. Not going to get into that, but the, on the screen, they, they literally type out level three risk, and then they list the threats. Um, at NBC, the NBC station here, they do the same thing. They show the words and the numbers, um, and the CBS station has dropped the words. They show the colors with the one through five, and they bookend it with low and high, which could also work. Um, but you know, it, it it just goes to show that there should be a consistent message. I think the consistent message should be the colors, and I think everybody's on or the numbers, not the colors. Well, I mean, yes, the colors, but for my my perspective, the numbers. I think everybody's on board with it. They were just afraid to drop the names. Um, and I am I am saying drop the names. Well, Alex, we we definitely appreciate your time and and, and this research that you've put in. I know it's getting some attention and, and we're happy to have you on the show tonight. Uh, we want to wish you well there at Mississippi State and uh, for those who uh, may want to learn more about uh, this project or just kind of follow you throughout your uh, career, how can they follow you? Yeah, so on Twitter, it's at AForbesWX. Um, on Facebook, if you just search my name, Alex Forbes, my page will pop up and on Instagram, same as Twitter, at AForbesWX. I have a drone. I love to fly drones. Half of my tweets and Instagram videos are drone videos. Um, so yeah, go follow me. Yeah. And uh, you also uh, help out with the severe weather ex uh, um, conference that you guys do at Mississippi State every year as well. Yes, except for this year. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's um, right. Yeah. Yes. It, it's a lot of fun. We've had uh, some fantastic people. We had the National Weather Service Director come out to Starkville last year. Uh, we were going to have the National Hurricane Center director this year, but our conference was scheduled for March 22nd and 23rd, I think, or 21st and 22nd, one of the two. So obviously that got whacked. Um, and we just, we did not have it because it, it was in that awkward period of time where nobody really knew what was going on. Um, and we didn't have the time to move it online. So it, we just you know, skipped it this year. It will be back next year, you know, Corona, yeah, as long as that's gone. Um, fingers crossed for that. But, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. Um, if you can make it to Starkville, I certainly encourage everybody to come, especially, you know, at, at Mississippi State's alumni network is huge and it's the perfect opportunity to get somebody else to pay for you to come back to Starkville. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. We'll leave it there. Alex, again, thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for watching the Carolina Weather Group. We'll see you next time.
Now, before we leave you uh, this week, we want to take another look at uh, the tropical threat that is developing off the uh, Carolina coast. We'll return you here first to uh, live pictures from a weather stem. You can see some of those clouds, a little bit of a clearing right now. It's even a little bit clearer than it was at the top of the program. Uh, the National Hurricane Center with their outlook out now with this red X and that line off of the uh, coast there of the Carolinas, an 80% chance of development uh, into a tropical system in the next 48 hours. This in particular is an area of low pressure that is located about 60 miles east-southeast of Wilmington. It's continuing to produce those large areas of disorganized showers and thunderstorms over the adjacent Atlantic waters. Uh, you can see what we anticipate to happen here over the course of the next 12 to 24 to 48 hours where we look at the NAM future cast here. The low is expected to move uh, northeastward near or just offshore of North Carolina Outer Banks by Thursday. It'll then turn north, northeastward and move along the mid-Atlantic coast on Friday. So environmental conditions and concerns that we're looking at with this system uh, not only will be, again, the possibility of a tropical or subtropical cyclone, which is expected to develop in the next day or so, uh, but regardless of that, we will be watching for the threat of some heavy rainfall that could cause flash flooding, erosion, even some rough surf all along eastern North Carolina, the coastal mid-Atlantic, even up into portions of southern New England all during the course of the next few days. We'll be watching for gusty winds as well, too, all along North Carolina's outer banks through uh, Thursday and then along that mid-Atlantic and southern North England coastline Friday and Saturday. So uh, I don't know how much travel you're, you're doing this summer, but you're going to want to probably keep an eye on that. And, you know, when we talk about the localized flooding threat, it's a little bit of like snow bands. Uh, you might get a lot of snow here and not a whole lot of snow a mile downtown. Uh, and that's the same thing with these tropical bands that set up. If you happen to get one of those bands that come on through, you could end up with a report just like this one, which came out of Beaufort, uh, South Carolina, where they got 12.75 inches of rain. That's a ton of rain. So the Kalkaras site there at Hunter Island State Park reporting a two-day rain total of nearly 13 inches of rain and what led to uh, inundated flooded roadways and unfortunately the estimated loss of about 101 sea turtle nests because of the flooding which prompted the state park to be closed on the 7th and the 8th uh, because of, of all of that. So that's just a reminder that although you could see one or two inches of rain, if you happen to get caught in one of these heavier bands uh, associated with what could be tropical depression or potentially tropical storm Faye, uh, you could see, again, a flash flooding threat, and we'll be watching for that again. Mainly a coastal storm, but whether it's named or it's not named, it could still carry those impacts. So keep it here. The Carolina Weather Group will have updates for you on our social media platforms. As always, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Periscope, and Twitch. We will also carry live news conferences. In this case, if the governor of South Carolina uh, needs to get any of that emergency weather information out to you. Matter of fact, this is just coming to me uh, as, as I'm recalling here, Mike Sprayberry, the North Carolina Director of the Emergency Management during a coronavirus briefing in the last few days, reminding folks now that we are in hurricane season, whether you use it for this storm or potentially another storm down the line, he's really encouraging you to make an evacuation plan that brings you to the home of a friend 
or a relative, someplace safe and away from the storm impact. But his real driving message is they will have public shelters if they are ever to be needed during this hurricane season. But in this age of coronavirus and the concerns with having to social distance, those shelters will have maximum capacities lower than they normally are and they of course will also carry some extra anxiety with them as people who are inside of them are going to be trying to social distance so while we are still here in july pre-peak of the hurricane season it's a good reminder to everybody have a plan it's always better to not have to use it that does it for this week's edition of the carolina weather group we will have a web extra that is out with Tony Rice talking about a comet that is passing through the area that if you get your timing just right and you happen to get a break in those clouds, uh, you get up in the early morning hours, you may be able to check out this really cool comet that is pretty rare. Uh, we don't get an opportunity like that a whole lot. We will have more of our conversation with Tony Rice coming up next week on an all-new edition of the Carolina Weather Group. We're going back to Mars, folks. We are launching uh, to Mars, hopefully by the end of the month, and Tony's going to tell us all about that when he does join us. For now, I'm James Briarton in Charlotte. Thanks for joining us here on this week's edition of the Carolina Weather Group. Don't forget, you can take our audio podcast with you on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. We would love for you to support our show at anchor.fm slash Carolina Weather. We'll see you again back here real soon.